And turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 7. We'll continue in our study through this book. 1 Samuel, chapter 7. We'll study verses 3 through 17. Last time we were together, we read the account, not only of the return of the ark from the Philistines who had taken it in the pitch of battle, but also the mishandling of the ark as the people of Israel treated the ark of God and the God of Israel as little better and in much the same way as the pagan nations treated their false gods. They gazed upon in awe and in veneration the box of the covenant of the Lord, the ark. And what happened? The Lord struck some of the men dead and it terrified the Israelites. And then the acts of the Israelites in response to the wrath of God against this form of idolatry, even in the midst of Israel, what happened? Well, they said to themselves, in essence, let's do the same thing that the Philistines tried. Let's get rid of the Ark of the Covenant. Where will it go up away from us? That was the question. And so as you come to the close of chapter 19, we read that there were men who came from Kiriath Yarim. That is another section, another town amongst the people of Israel. And in chapter 7, verse 1, that they came and they took up the ark of the Lord and they brought it to the house of Avinadab on the hill. And that whenever they came and took the ark, they consecrated the son of Avinadab named Eleazar to have charge over the ark of the Lord. And that from that day, the ark was lodged at Kiriath Yarim. And we're told a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And so the text of Scripture gives us the indication that not only had the ark of God gone into the hands of the Philistines for months and months and, yes, been returned, not only had the people of Israel lost some 34,000 soldiers, but that the worship of the people of God, of the priesthood that was at Shiloh, you remember the priesthood that was of the house of Eli and the sons, faithless sons of Eli, and even the training and the ministerial care of the boy Samuel, that it seems that that ministerial site has imploded. It's collapsed. And so now the people of Israel are in a very difficult spiritual circumstance, a a time of darkness, a time where the ark is still distant from the people of God. It hasn't returned to Shiloh. It doesn't seem there's anything going on there. But rather it's at Kiriath Yarim being cared for by a group of Levites who have charge over it. And so that's where we come to chapter 7. And we encounter, once again, the man, Samuel, caring for the people of God ministerially for the sake of the glory of God and the reformation and the revival of his people. So let's read chapter 7, verses 3 through 17. And Samuel said to the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. 
So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into a confusion. And they were routed before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below beth Car. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called, and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all of Samuel. Then the cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekron to Gath, and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there. And there also he judged Israel. And he built there an altar to the Lord. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we pray that you would give us spiritual understanding, O Lord, that even through ancient narrative, O Lord, the account of your faithfulness, to a repentant people. Oh, Lord, that you would stir us, oh, Father, to repent ourselves and to turn to you, oh, Lord, and to trust in you for help and to be a people who cry out to the Lord expectantly. Oh, Father, we pray all of this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. An unfaithful ministry inevitably leads to an unfaithful church. And I think that's one of the profound testimonies of the first few chapters of 1 Samuel. Again, we return to this idea, this narrative that we've already received about a ministry in Shiloh. And that the sons of Eli were self-serving men. That they were exacting from the people a heavy tithe and even more than a tithe that was allotted to them. And they were mocking God. And their lack of piety showed. And it taught God's people to have hearts that were like theirs. Hearts that were far 
from God. They decided that they would use God and that they would take and make use of the ark for the sake of their own ends. To really take the ark of God and to treat it very much like the nations treated the pagan idols. Inevitably, a church that is under an unfaithful ministry, that is itself an unfaithful church because of an unfaithful ministry, begins to suffer. Because at the very core of an unfaithful work, an unfaithful church, is a group of people who have put their hope in powerless things. Whether in our context, it may be a people who have put their hope in programs and different things that they can do for the sake of inclusivity, sensitivity to a neighborhood or a culture outside of the church, whatever it is. Maybe it's not just programs that a church puts its faith in, but rather weak people and leaders who themselves stand, yet they have unfaithful hearts. And they break covenant with God. And because of the fall of a leader, the whole of the church turns in and implodes upon itself in their spiritual disaster. Again, this is the sort of thing that Israel suffered. And it was from the unfaithful ministry of the sons of Eli and Eli himself who refused to rebuke his sons, who chose the pleasure of his sons over the pleasure of the God of heaven. And this had an impact. It wasn't just a season It's a wrong thing to think that it was only eight months whenever the ark was in the hands of the Philistines, but rather this had an extended impact on the people of God, possibly even, and I think rightly to be understood, some 20 years as the closing uh, verses here tell us of the former narrative. Because how are the people described of the house of Israel? They are people lamenting. After the Lord. And so here as we come to these verses. Verses 3 through 17. We have the account of the rise. Of the pastoral priestly ministry. Of the man Samuel. And so to just follow the structure of scripture. And to highlight the things that are already there in the narrative. The first thing I want us to pay attention to. Is the call for repentance. Verses 3 and 4. Second, the corporate confession of sin, verses 5 and 6. And the third place, the test of faith, verses 7 and 8. Then in the fourth, the faithfulness of God, verses 9 through 11. And then in verses 12 through 17, the continued ministry of Samuel. The continued ministry of Samuel. As we come to verses 3 and 4, we are coming into, again, that context of the time of separation. Where the worship of the people of God has this disjointed, almost unnatural and undesigned uh, format. You have the ark at distance from the people of God. You don't have this centralized and established priesthood like you had in that former time. The ark, where is it? It's at Kiriath Yarim. It's being cared for in an isolated place, but in a place where it doesn't seem to be the account of the scriptures that the people of Israel are invited to come and then participate in the worship and the ministry of this wonderful piece of 
uh, of the Lord's mercy to his people. Uh, that would include the use of the Ark of the Covenant. And in verse 3, we encounter Samuel, and it's very abrupt. And this is one of the things that I really appreciate about Old Testament narratives, uh, is that they sort of move along. There's a, a high speed. And we don't know the distance of time, whether uh, this is within the 20 years of the absence of the ark from the regular worship and the life of the people of Israel, or, or how long it is. We also don't know Samuel's age. I think it's a fair assumption that some time has passed, but the scriptures don't give us anything uh, to really point us to that. We're just immediately introduced to the man, Samuel, and the thing that he's doing in ministry. And it's very simple. Samuel, the priest, is caring for the people of God pastorally. How? He's preaching. He's preaching. And it's a very simple thing. And it's something that I want you to understand. It doesn't seem that there's any sort of mind within Samuel that he is trying to enact a reformation. But that's the work that happens. A reformation by preaching. And you say, how do you know? What do you think? You know, what's, what's all this? Well, it's because verse 3, when it introduces Samuel, it introduces us to an excerpt or sort of the Cliff Notes version of what he is saying to the people of Israel. And this is what he says. If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. It's like the summary. It's like the conclusion where the pastor is saying, and this is what I want you to take away. And it's very simple because what he's doing here is he's calling the people of Israel to repentance. And what's the outline of this? Is he uh, in a church building like this? Undoubtedly, no. I think it's a right thing to think of Samuel. Uh, in light of verse 16, this is probably revealing so much about this regular pastoral ministry of the priest Samuel. It says, and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah. And then also that he maintains a ministry as a judge from his home at Ramah. He's going to God's people, probably on foot. We don't know. But the simple, constant cry that comes from his lips is repentance. And I want to tell you that that's at least the first aspect of any reformation. That it's repentance, because whenever the church departs from the living God, it's sin. The need for reformation grows out of a cold spirituality and an offense committed against God. From an unfaithful ministry. From a people who learn well from their leaders and become unfaithful people. And who give their hearts over to a world of idolatries. And for the people of Israel, it's quite simple. It's the Baals. And then, specifically mentioned... The Asherim, or the Ashtaroth, another false god, seems to be almost like the, fa the favorite local um, idolatry that the people of Israel enjoyed because it's specifically mentioned here and then mentioned in other sections 
of Scripture. But whenever he says this to the people, he says, firstly, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart. And he indicates to them and to us this evening that repentance grows from a heart that is convicted of a need for the forgiveness of God. That repentance isn't just something that comes into the air and seems like a good idea and so you just do it as a work of religion. But rather it has to begin with a heart that is gripped with our offense against the God of heaven. If you're returning to the Lord with all your heart. This ought to cause us to examine the times in which we ourselves have repented and maybe even our present repentance. Do we feel the weight of the offense of an unsincere repentance? Well, I think we ought to. But that's not all he says. He then gives them something to do because true repentance does something. And this is the deed that he tells them to do. Put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord. This first deed. Chop them down. Cut the Asherim down. Take the poles down. Take the idols down. Dispose of them. Because repentance is actually taking action. It should be putting to death the sinful deed that you are doing. It has to begin there. You can't continue on in sin. You have to actually put to death and stop the thing that is the offensive act. I don't know how many of you have an Asherim in your backyard or a bale set up. This could be a whole number of different things. It might mean uh, turning off the internet. It may mean putting filters on the things that you can and can't look at and then getting people to be for you a network of accountable brothers and confessing that sin not only to the Lord but also to the brothers to help you. Maybe it is... Actively going and pursuing anger management, counseling, getting help. Maybe it is removing all alcohol from your house if that's it. Whatever it is. There are a whole number of sins and there are a whole number of different things that we may need to do. Acts that are appropriate and that are at the very heart of repentance. But I want to tell you that repentance is not just a legalism. It's not just turning away or killing something or stopping doing this. That sounds wonderful. That's a part of it. It's not only turning away from sin. It's also turning to the Lord. Because that's that second thing he encourages and calls the people to do regarding their repentance. And direct your heart to the Lord. And serve him only. You know, this is... I think quite clear. Turn to the Lord with a heartfelt need. Turn away from the false worship and unto him in true worship. He doesn't just want the act of cutting off and killing it. The self-punishment that is penance. He also wants the heart, the fullness of repentance. Not just sorrow over things done, but a heart that expects mercy and that looks for it sincerely and then a life that's lived out after the Lord the God of heaven again we have all sorts of different uh, things in our lives and I think that oftentimes 
Maybe the idols that we need to cut down don't look like the specific sins that I mentioned, but maybe they look like the idol that we very often worship in culture, and that is something like a sincere desire for personal approval from other people. Maybe it's something like that. Not to be offensive, to be more tolerant, and to have a quiet mouth and a still tongue that doesn't speak the truth as a witness to the watching world. I think more often than not, that's been one of the great things that the church worships at today, that there is a a sincere fear of ever offending anyone. And so we don't say anything. We sit idly by while the world does what it wants and draws us into a tacit approval of the same. But I love that it's not just a call to repentance, but the call to repentance also comes with a promise. And we see that it's here in verse 3, that if you do these things, do this act of repentance, that this is the promise, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. And so we're told in verse 4, the people of Israel did what he had called them to, that they put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. As we come to verses 5 and 6, we see this second aspect of what is a a reformation in the midst of the people of God and this thing that, that precedes a time of revival, and it is the call for corporate confession of sin. And the account is simple. Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. It's fairly simple, really. And if you are curious about Mizpah and its history, it seems to be one of those kind of middle places, a a, a gathering spot. And it's in the north of Israel, uh, sort of close to Dan, if you're familiar with a map of Israel. And I love that whenever he tells the people to gather, it seems to me evident, at least, that Samuel doesn't expect a lot of spiritual progress from these people. He doesn't say, come, and you'll make all these wonderful uh, concessions or all these wonderful prayers. But rather, he says, gather at Mizpah, and I will pray for you. There's this pastoral heart evidenced. Come and I will minister to you and for you and lead you. That's the depiction of this form of ministry. And what we read as we continue on in verse 6 is that they did. Israel did gather at Mizpah. And then there's described this first act that they do whenever they arrive. And it's one that, uh, oh, when we read the Bible, it's got some possible... Um, Analogs of other places where we see other things that seem like this, but there's no expression of the fullness of meaning here. But we're told that when they gathered, verse 6, that they drew water and they poured it out before the Lord. This first act, this worshipful act. And as I read commentaries and try to get my head around maybe what's going on, uh, some think that maybe it's akin to the language of Psalm 62 8. Where you have the soul poured out before the Lord. Or maybe it's akin to John seven thirty seven, 37. Um, where you have uh, the testimony about Jesus in Jerusalem at the Feast of Tabernacles. And the people who are pouring out water in the worship of the God of heaven as a symbol 
of the hope that the people had for the cleansing of their sins. But I just want to say contextually this, again, it's tied uniquely to the call for corporate confession of sin. At minimum, I think we ought to understand it as a symbol of their sorrow poured out, expressed over their sin. And probably also a steadfast hope or an expectation of God's cleansing mercy. But the next thing that we're told that they do is that they fast. That they come as a people and they abstain from food for the sake of what? Preparing their hearts to look upon the Lord expectantly. To need from Him and to desire from Him whatever insight He may give in the softening of their hearts and the softening of their souls. They're coming as a people to sincerely deal with the Lord. And the second aspect is that they fasted. And then we have the most brief account, one of the most brief confessions of sin that's given as a corporate confession in the Bible and specifically in the Old Testament. And it's, it's here. Um, this is what they said. We have sinned against the Lord. Period. This public corporate confession that they owned their sin. And that they owned it not just as individuals, but as a people. Because the people of Israel were a people of covenant. They weren't just individuals going through life, but rather they were a people accountable for the sins of their fathers and the sins of their neighbors and the sins of their families. They were a people who came together to simply say, we own what we have done against you. We know that we have done it and it's against you, O Lord. And it's offensive in your sight. And some of the things that we need to see here that are so important is not only that it's corporate, but it's public. Because they had provoked God. And before the watching world, they had lost their witness. They were, after all, supposed to be a a light in the darkness to the nations. They were supposed to be those who would testify to the grace and the mercy of our God. But their confession was public. Why? So that they would regain the testimony the people of God should always have for the watching world. And it's wonderful. And I think, I think it just shows us how small, how brief, yet how true and impactful our confession of sin to the Lord can simply be. Our confessions of sin every Sunday are a great deal longer. But it just suffices to be able to Uh, For us to come to the Lord with a heart broken over sin and simply say, we have sinned against the Lord. The simple admission and ownership of an offense committed against the God of heaven. Then as you press forward in verses 7 and 8, we have the test of faith. And one of the things that I want to say is anytime God's people turn back to him, it's inevitable that the course of life, the things that happen to us, the regular events, that this will press us yet again to test our faith and to simply say, was it genuine? Did you really and sincerely offer your heart up to the Lord? Are you sincere? And will you continue in the faith that you've now professed and the repentance that you made? Because what do we read in verse 7? Well, that, as the Philistines hear of the gathering of the people of Israel, for a moment at least, they have a short memory. 
It's as if they forget the power of the God who was the God of the Ark of the Covenant, who afflicted them severely with tumors and with pestilence and disease. And what do they do? Well, they come up against the people of Israel gathered at Mizpah. And I love the honesty here that we see at the close of verse 7. And when the people heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. Now, we should always fear the Lord. We should never have fear of men. But it is a simple and human fact that whenever an army comes against you, you may quake against the fear that they may take your life and be your undoing. It matters what you do in light of that fear and where you turn. Do you turn into it and do you look toward the people? And do you build up what? Great ramparts as your first line and first order? A good defense is a physical defense. Or do you turn to the Lord, the God of heaven, full of power, the God of all providence? And you look to him, the God of all power, who is for you and for the people of God and has always been the most sure defense, the defense of body and soul. And that's what we see in verse 8. We see the people changing. We see the change in their heart, their mind, and their soul. They don't go and they carry out the ark again. That's not what they do. No, what do they do? Well, we're told that the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. Well, what does this tell us? Well, it tells us that they remember verse 3. That's what it tells us. The promise that came along with their repentance. That if they turned to the Lord and if they served Him alone, that the Lord would deliver them from the hand of the Philistines. And it's a heart of faith that grips these people, even in the midst of fear. What do they do? They look to their pastor, this priest in the midst of the people, and they say, pray for us. Pray for us that God will do what you have promised he will do. Pray for us. I would say that they passed the test of faith. Finally. They're not trying to dispose of God. They're not trying to go about in any other way, but rather turning to the Lord in the hope of his faithfulness and submitting themselves to his pleasure and to his kindness. As we press on in the passage of Scripture, we come to verse 9, 9 through 11, in the faithfulness of God. So Samuel took, in response to their request, so Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel. And the Lord answered him. And as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And they were routed before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them down as far as below Beth Car. God is faithful. The word that he gave to his people through the priestly ministry, the preaching of Samuel, that if they turned to him, that he would deliver them from the hands 
of the Philistines. The Lord kept his promise. He honored his word. Moreover, he was pleased to accept the sacrifice that was offered on behalf of the people of Israel. This single sacrifice, not these two great um, feeding uh, cows that were towing the ark back into Israel, but rather just the lamb. Just this tiny lamb at the hands of the priest. And it just goes to show us that even when the hearts of God's people go far from him, that if at any given time we turn back to him and we put our faith in him and in the forgiveness that can only be had through the blood of another lamb, how quick, how willing And how wonderful the love of God is whenever he pours it out for the sake of his people. I love verse 10 because of the way it speaks of the act of God. The evidence of his acceptance. Not only of their repentance, but also the sacrifice to atone uh, for their sins. We read this. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering... The Philistines drew near to attack Israel, but the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against them and threw them into confusion, and they were routed before Israel. What? Does he send flaming hailstones? No. Does he send yet another pestilence? No. It's as if he opens his mouth and he shouts, at the enemies of God's people, and he presses them to fear him. One of the reasons I love this is it's not just a sound that's audible to the Philistines that puts them into fright, but it's a sound even heard by the people of God that ought to have bolstered their hearts to simply know that there was reconciliation with this God. It wasn't that the Philistines were only scared, but Israel was given new heart. Wonderful. That though they were once a people defected in idolatry, now they're a people defended by God. God is faithful to his promises and to his people. He has said, I will be your God and you will be my people. And he is pleased to honor it and pour out forgiveness even for a people who are freshly on the heels of of their repentance and who have scarcely moved away from their original act of sin that they repented of. It's wonderful, the faithfulness of God. And this is a thing that we ought to understand and see that if the Lord would do revival, it's a revival of the heart and it's a revival of faith that has a testimony for God's people that we would stand strong in Him and before Him and fearless before the world because we believe our God forgives. That's the thing. Revival is not devoid of his grace, but it's based upon and bound from it that God forgives sinners, that his people have an assurance, that his people also have the evidences that faith in him is not faith misplaced. And then in verses 12 through 17, we have the closing of this section that uh, lays out some of the descriptors of the ministry of Samuel and the ensuing history that came after this great event, we're told that Samuel took a stone and that he set it up between Mizpah and Shen, 
sometimes this is called uh, Yeshana and other text, or maybe you'll see that on a biblical map. Um, and that he called its name Ebenezer. And this is one of those uh, titles that you'll see again and again, any time in the Old Testament where you've got the Israelites and they're setting up some kind of monument, generally the, the language of what they name it or name the area will be Ebenezer. And it's because it's these two words that are kind of glued together in Hebrew. Eben or Evon means stone and Etzar means to remember, a stone of remembrance. Now, why is this an important thing? And it's because of this. The character of the ministry of Samuel wasn't a a ministry of self-glorification. As if he would continue in his ministry in the midst of God's people and say, Hey, I prayed for you and look at what I got God to do. But rather, he gave God the glory. This was a stone set up. This was a monument to the glory of God because what did he put upon it? It was this. Till now, the Lord has helped us. Till now the Lord has helped us. This statement of the mercy and the help, the aid of our God. And why is it set there? So that whenever anybody would pass by, they would simply remember the time where the Lord honored the repentance of his people and kept his promises. And that he is a God of deliverance. You go on and in verse 13 and 14, we have the account of the subduing of the Philistines and the regaining of the territory that they had taken from the Israelites. These are all the continued work and the outworking of the strengthening of God's people and the restoration of God's people to a place of spiritual strength. It's in verse 15 where we have this closing. We have another explanation of the continued work and his faithful ministry. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. What's judgment? We think of the judges, and there's a great diversity of judges. Maybe we think of, I don't know, uh, Samuel or uh, Samson, uh, who judged by the power of his hand, this strong, uh, strong man for God. Or maybe we think of Deborah and the military wisdom that she had. What was Samuel's judgment? Well, it was entirely spiritual. It was a priest who would lead God's people. And you have this foreshadowing of the spiritual need of God's people. That judgment ought to be understood, especially in regard to Samuel, as the teaching and the correction of the people of God by a ruler set out by God. The teaching and correction of Israel by a ruler set out by God. But it's not just that, not just that he judges, not just that he calls God's people to learn about the faithfulness of God or that he corrects God's when they're faithless. But we read about his pastoral heart. And why do I use the language of pastoral? Because after all, he's a priest. Makes sacrifices. He has a a sacerdotal ministry where he, he does the work of atonement and the work of sacrifice. It's because of this. Because we're told that his heart and his ministry was characterized by a circuit. Verse 16. Year by year, to Bethel, to Gilgal, and Mizpah. As he's going in and out amongst the people of God and going to where they are and ministering to them. He's not like the priests that were at Shiloh who simply said, you come to us, you come here, the center of worship, but rather he goes to them. And even when he's at home, even whenever he's in his own neighborhood at Ramah, he continues a regular ministry of the care that the people of God need. He's simply faithful. 
You don't have to read too hard or squint your eyes too much to discern that. And that he continued to intercede for God's people as he built an altar to the Lord, even at his own home. That's the sort of ministry. It's not just a ministry that shoots up for the sake of reformation. It's not just a ministry that burns brightly only to burn out in the midst of revival, but a ministry that's lifelong, that's simple, that's faithful, and that pursues the people of God and also the pleasure of God that ought to be modeled and is one that I hope that our church will have and be blessed to have for the whole course of the existence of our congregation. May the Lord be so gracious to us. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the scriptures. Oh Lord, we pray. Lord, for our church, we pray for the mission you have called the church to. Oh Lord, to not only care for and feed both the sheep and the lambs of your flock, but Lord, to be evangelists, to speak the good news. Oh Lord, to have wisdom to speak the truth and to speak love, O oh Lord, in season and out of season, the good news of the offer of Jesus Christ by faith to all the world, O oh Father. Father, I do pray that you would reform our church where we need reformation, O oh Lord, that you would revive us to be a people that would look to you with a renewed hope. O oh Father, that we would press on in the regular work that you've given to us, Lord, you would give us courage to do these things without quivering in fear before men, without having hearts bolstered by faith to you. Oh, Lord, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.